Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast, a joint production of Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Klobis, and today I'm talking with Natasha Iskender, author of the book, Does Skill Make Us Human? Migrant Workers in 21st Century Qatar and Beyond. Natasha, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for agreeing to be on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Sure, I'm happy to do that. Um, So maybe it's useful for me to start where I am and tell you a little bit about how I got here. Um, I'm a professor at New New York University's Wagner School of Public Service, um, and I work on migration. And my interest in migration has to do with its generative possibilities. I see migration as uh, a means to generate new knowledges, new ideas, new perspectives on the world, and also new solidarities. Um, my work has focused primarily on migration and work, um, and it's focused on that uh, in many areas around the world. Um, this most recent project is on Qatar, and I know we'll talk about that some today. But um, previous projects have also taken me to other migration corridors. I've looked at migration from Mexico to the U.S., from Morocco to Europe. Um, And I've looked at the ways in which migration has generated new possibilities for policy, linking emigration with uh, local and national economic development, new possibilities for political voice, new possibilities for skill development on work sites in the U.S., for example, new possibilities for organizing. And um, this generative side of migration has really captivated me. It's captivated me as a scholar, and it, and it grows out of my own biography. Um, I am a product of immigration in a, in a very direct sense. Uh, my father's family is from Egypt and my mother's family, uh, my mother was from what was then Czechoslovakia. Uh, she defected in 1963. And so I, uh, uh, with this combination of backgrounds, have really come to appreciate how the convergence, the meeting of different worldviews can really generate new approaches to living to exploring, to thinking, to knowing, and and ultimately um, to forge connection. It's a very rich take on migration because, I mean, I I think of, you know, migration in in certain terms and it's, and, and, uh, you know, the the terms that reflect my own background, of course, but you're, you're, as you point out, you know, we we tend to think of it in terms of like, you know, the physical presence of people, the uh, journey people undertake, uh, you know, the experiences they're leaving, the experiences they're doing, but but what you're talking about here is is just how all of that is, is in some respects, the proverbial tip of the iceberg. That's right. Uh, I think migration is actually an enormously generative process. Um, And it is a process that is inherent to our societies and economies, even though we tend to represent it as something exceptional, as something that is uh, a, a dynamic where people move from the outside in or people uh, migrants are in addition to our labor markets or to our societies. In fact, migration has always been inherent in our uh, social structures, in our economic functions, in our political lives. And um, I think that there is a real need to look at the ways in which this flow of ideas, perspectives, uh, worldviews that accompanies migration is actually enormously um, fruitful for uh, identifying new pathways forward for political action, for economic production, and for institutional creation. Hmm. So what led you to focus upon uh Qatar and uh, use that as the uh, focal point for your study of migration and skill? Qatar is such an interesting country to look at for a whole host of reasons. Um, I'd say the first most obvious reason is that everyone in Qatar is a migrant. 95% of the labor force is foreign um, and the migration is from all over the world. Um, That means that 
everyone you encounter, basically everyone you encounter is from somewhere else. Uh, the police, the teachers, uh, the nurses, the hairdressers, the restaurant workers, um, the uh, administrators and government, everyone is from somewhere else. Um, and, it, and it creates a really um, powerful image of the impact of migration. Migration is no longer something exceptional. It, it can't be if everyone is a migrant. Um, the second reason that I was interested in, in Qatar is that there's very little research actually on migration to the Persian Gulf or the Arabian Gulf, depending on your nomenclature. Most of the research on migration looks at migration from the global south to the global north. Uh, you know, we this is a frame that that is very familiar to anyone who's even followed migration just in the press. Um, the image is always migration from uh, the global south to countries of the global north, chiefly the U.S. and Europe. But in fact, migration is a global phenomenon, and uh, much of migration is actually from the global south to the global south. And as part of that flow, the GCC countries, the countries of the Persian Gulf, are an important, crucial node. Um, in the Persian Gulf, about 50%, depending on estimates, 50 to 70% of residents in Persian Gulf countries are migrant. And remittances, which are the monies that migrants send home, uh, from the Persian Gulf represent about one-fourth of total global remittances. So this is a huge, huge flow. This is a hugely important migration trajectory. Um, and uh, this is really a, a space that illustrates what part of migration systems are a product of frameworks developed in the global north, right? Our perception of migration are the product of frameworks in the global north and what parts of them are actually uh, a product of, of migration. Um, this is, the, the Persian Gulf is an understudied area in terms of migration in part because of the focus that I mentioned on the global north, but also in part because there are difficulties with research access. I can tell you a little bit more about uh, why I decided specifically to look at Qatar and why now, but let me just pause for a second and see if that answers your question. Oh, it, it, it does indeed. In fact, I was going to ask you to uh, elaborate upon some of those difficulties because reading your book really underscores the not just the 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 the, the migration and, and and its role in 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 the Qatar labor force, but also how. Uh, heavily regulated it is and how challenging it can sometimes be to get even the most basic information about what's going on. That's right. Um, research on migration in Qatar and in the GCC in general has been uh, difficult. Access has been heavily controlled. And so most of the research on migration to the Persian Gulf actually takes place in migrants' countries of origin. So in India, in Bangladesh, in Nepal, rather than in Qatar, in the UAE, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, so doing research in country was a specific challenge. Um, but I think the window for doing that research emerged, um, it, it was a, it's a window that opened at a specific moment in time. So um, as you may know, uh, Qatar is hosting the 2022 World Cup uh, for soccer this year. Uh, the kickoff is November 21st. Um, and uh, it was awarded those hosting rights in 2010. Uh, it was kind of unexpected. Uh, Qatar was viewed as the dark horse. And in fact, uh, uh, the U.S. Had, uh, had, had planned to win and didn't. And so when Clinton, uh, President Clinton, uh, who attended the award ceremony, discovered that Qatar won uh, the hosting rights, he went back to his hotel room and, according to the Washington Post, broke a mirror there in anger. Um, but uh, what happened after Qatar was awarded the World Cup hosting rights is that it funneled hundreds of billions of dollars to reinvent itself as a center for global sports and global culture. 
um, it began a massive construction push where it built uh, state-of-the-art stadia, tourist facilities, infrastructure for the games, and to do so recruited hundreds of thousands of men, mainly from South Asia, the Middle East, and North Af- and Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, to build the structures. Um, and in the build-up to the games, right, which are these global games, this global event, uh, the international press and human rights organizations turned a spotlight on the working conditions experienced by the migrants on construction sites in Qatar. And the catalog of labor abuses these organizations documented was absolutely devastating. Uh, the reports pointed to wage theft, often months long, forced labor and forced overtime, um, recruitment under forms of debt bondage, uh, where workers often paid several thousand dollars just to secure a job in Qatar, passport confiscation by employers, and even physical int- intimidation. Um, the reports also uh, documented the high rates of injury and even death experienced by the workers. And uh, they described how workers were confined to labor camps and how the conditions in those camps were really quite abysmal, substandard. They were crowded. Uh, you know, the, the reports noted uh, dozens of men stacked in bunks in each room. They were unsanitary. Some of them even had raw sewage leaking in the courtyards. And these were conditions that I uh, was able to observe directly. Um, and so human rights organizations and the international press began to compare the conditions in Qatar to slavery or to bonded labor and to describe uh, workers in Qatar as World Cup slaves. Um, and this was a source of tremendous consternation to the Qatari government, who was embarking on the hosting of these games as a way to make themselves a destination. Uh, and so this was a, a really difficult uh, PR problem in some ways for them. That's, that's I think, how they viewed uh, these press reports initially. Um, and in the midst of this, uh, there was an opening for um, the, the opening generated by the fact that the Qatari government was trying to sort out what all these reports meant to have a researcher come in and investigate uh, what some of these uh, instances of labor exploitation really did signify. Were they uh, exceptional instances of bad behavior? Were they systemic? And what else was going on? And so there was a moment where I was able to obtain a grant uh, from the Qatar National Research Foundation and uh, design a project to look not just at working conditions, but to look more broadly at the labor relations in uh, the Qatari construction industry and to really document the whole spectrum, um, not just labor violations, but actually the labor process on site and to what extent uh, this labor process um, created exploitative conditions or created opportunities for training, for development, and so on. Uh, so it was really uh, um, an invitation to do an assessment of uh, the labor process on construction sites in Qatar. Now, you don't you, your book is not simply a reporting of labor conditions or a description of labor conditions. You uh, in, in introduce to it a framework. And you use that framework to interpret and understand more broadly how we uh, understand people, migrants, how we address them. And you centered this upon skill. I was wondering if you could perhaps talk a little bit about skill, uh, the role that it plays, its distinction between, you know, uh, between say a body and skill, uh, how this plays into how the Qataris, uh, you know, deal with migration, and also a little bit perhaps uh, about the the, the kafala system. Sure, um, you know, I didn't intend to write a book about skill. It was not my intention. Um, a skill was something that emerged as salient for me through the research. 
And in some respects, it was a surprise. Um, and to understand why it was a surprise, I have to outline kind of the, what the conventional wisdom was around the cause of exploitation in Qatar. Um, so the, the culprit that human rights organizations and, and the international press and, and many observers of working conditions in Qatar identified for the exploitative conditions uh, was the kafala system. And the kafala system it, it formally translates into a sponsorship system. Kafil, which is the singular of kafala, actually legally, it formally translates into sponsor. And this structure uh, in 2010, and I say in 2010 because there have been some reforms to it, which I'll touch on in a minute, um, legally bound workers to their employer. Uh, in other words, Workers were formally tied to their employer such that their employer had property rights over their labor. And workers were not allowed to withhold labor for any reason. They couldn't quit in response to to any kind of condition, extreme abuse, non-payment of wages. They were not able to walk away from work legally. Um, and they also could not leave the country without their employer's permission. So they were formally tied to their employer. They couldn't change jobs. And, and the most uh, extreme expression on, on some level of this, this uh, ownership of workers' labor is that workers were uh, not able to return to Qatar after leaving without their prior employer's permission. So really a a system that established uh, the employer's property rights over workers' labor. And, you know, this intuitively seems correct. It seems like if you have a system of bonded labor, this is what produces exploitation. But as I mentioned, 95% of workers in Qatar uh, are migrants, and they are all and were then covered by the same legal system, by the same kafala system. So doctors and lawyers and professors were also bound uh, under the kafala system. Indeed, I was as well when I did, when I did my research. Um, so, right, uh, not everyone was experiencing these labor violations. Um, you know, the doctors, managers, professors were not experiencing the same kinds of exploitative conditions. So something else had to be going on. And um, as I uh, really explored what happened on the construction site, um, the salience of skill uh, and skill as ability, but also skill as a political category uh, became very clear to me. Um, you know, skill is always at the core of all work and work relations. It's where you see the power dynamics on site. It's where uh, you see worker autonomy and worker expressions of initiative and creativity. Um, And those expressions chafe against workplace structures of control. Um, And so it's where you can start to see the logic of um, uh, disciplinary measures at the work site and perhaps even beyond. And so as I started looking at the construction sites, you know, it's one of the things that's important to note about the construction site is that they are um, exceptional in so many ways. I mean, anybody who's seen the remarkable photos of the stadia Qatar has built for the World Cup, and these are images that are circulating on the internet, can get a sense of how daring and ambitious the designs are. But what is less visible, perhaps, is how difficult these stadia, but also the luxury developments, the artificial islands, the museums, the cultural centers, all of the the features that make Qatar a destination, how difficult they are to build. They require really extremely sophisticated and highly advanced construction techniques. By some measures, Qatar is one of the most advanced, Qatar has one of the most advanced construction industries in the world. But the workers, right, the migrant workers who arrived in Qatar to build those structures arrived with minimal construction experience, certainly not construction experience on any sites that looked like anything they encountered in Qatar. 
And so as a result, construction sites in Qatar had to be organized as vast training systems. Um, all building practices, every single process on site, every single task doubled as a, as a training system. Um, and, you know, it's not an exaggeration to say that companies lived and died by how well they were able to train their workforce. And they were incredibly deliberate about this. They, they even considered their training systems to be proprietary. Um, and they, they, they were uh, really granular in their assessment of how well their workers were learning, how quickly, how much capacity they had acquired because their structures literally could not be built without this advanced construction knowledge. And yet, and here is where the salience of skill really emerged for me. And yet, when I asked managers and supervisors about workers, they referred to their workers as unskilled, unproductive, and sometimes just as bodies. Um, and so it became clear to me that when they were talking about skill, they were referring to something other than skill. They were referring to a political category that justified the exploitation and the dehumanization of their workers. Um, unskilled, when applied to workers that were not just clearly skilled, but whose skill was essential to production, essential to the endeavor of building these um, fantastical buildings, uh, really illustrates that this category was not about ability, but rather was about political personhood. Um, and so I tried to understand how skill functioned in this way. Like, how could it be a way to uh, dehumanize, degrade, uh, assume that workers should not have the right to full freedom? Um, and, you know, when I, when I thought about this, one of the things that became clear to me is that um, I had to look at learning. Um, and that's because uh, labeling someone as unskilled is essentially a denial of learning. And if you think about it, learning is fundamentally an act of freedom. You can compel someone to do something. You can force them to act in a certain way, but you can't force someone to learn. I mean, anyone who's ever learned something knows that learning is a deeply intimate process, right? It requires, uh, it requires imagination. It requires aspiration. We have to want to learn. It requires desire, uh, agency, volition. And, you know, we learn in relation with others. And so it requires trust and empathy and social connection, even solidarity. And so, in denying learning, you're denying that the unskilled, and here I'm talking about the unskilled as a political category, you're denying that the unskilled have the capacity to access these very important registers of human experience. And these are the registers that in some sense make up freedom. So you are denying the capacity of the quote unquote unskilled for freedom. And then you know, how can you deprive someone of the freedom that they can't access or experience to begin with, right? Because they are unskilled. And so the jump to justifying labor exploitation then becomes very, very small. One of the things that I, I, I was especially struck by when I was reading your book is how this is something that, you know, a Western perspective would say, oh, well, that's just the region, you know, the, 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 the follow system, that's, you know, just how they do things back there. That's, you know, Arabic, it's, it's, it's Middle Eastern, it's Near Eastern, et cetera. As you explained, though, that this is actually a, a you know, the, the system that we're talking about here is a modern system that has its roots in, you know, the modern globalizing economy that, uh, you could see developing, uh, 100, 150 years prior to uh, today, and, and how it owes probably more to that than to any other single uh, input. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, one of, the, one of the impetuses that I didn't mention at the top about doing research in Qatar was that, um, you know, I, I had uh, discomfort, I felt some discomfort at kind of the Orientalist 
anti-Arab bias of some of the representations of the kafala system, right? This barbaric, archaic, uh, regional system. And actually in doing the historical analysis of how it came to be, and in particular, the notions of skill that it held, um, it became clear that the kafala system was actually the product of uh, one global commodity boom and bust after another. And so uh, the first uh, global commodity boom was actually uh, pearls uh, at the turn of the, well, I would say in the late 1800s, early uh, early 1900s, pearls were more valuable than diamonds. They were the epitome of luxury. And um, there, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't, uh, there were, there was seemed to be almost a shortage of pearls. I mean, pearls were in such high demand and the most valuable pearls were the pearls from the region. And so the entire industry of the region was organized around the harvest of pearls off the seabed of Qatar and other countries in the region. Um, and tens of thousands of pearling dows would go out uh, every season to harvest uh, pearls from the seabed. But this was an extremely labor-intensive industry. And right from the start, you started to see systems of slavery and bondage interwoven into the labor relations. And uh, the industry relied very heavily on the use of enslaved labor from East Africa. Um, And the industry relied on this labor, but was funded by uh, merchants from India, uh, the the Indian subcontinent, but also jewelers from the US and Europe. It was a thoroughly international system. And um, this, the systems of control and bondage, the seeds of it uh, emerged there, uh, along with the denial of the deeply embodied and intensive skill of the the pearl harvesters. Um, The commodity bust, the commodity boom went bust, uh, really thanks to a a noodle uh, salesman in Japan who discovered a way to culture pearls. And uh, in very short order, uh, by the 1930s, the pearling dows were being broken up for firewood. But right on the heels of that, you saw the emergence of uh, oil extraction from Qatar and the rest of the Persian Gulf um, and uh, the participation in particular in Qatar of um, British oil companies. And these British oil companies, um, while, they didn't, while they denied it, uh, used enslaved persons as uh, their labor force so much so that they extended the life of slavery in Qatar all the way through to 1952. And there again, there was an idea about skill and how skill levels should be connected to different conditions of work. But skill was not about ability, it was about who was bonded and who wasn't. Uh, So that you had Uh, bonded workers doing highly skilled work and being labeled as unskilled, uh, whereas you had uh, workers who enjoyed freedom of contract who were entirely unskilled but who were labeled as skilled and who had much better living and working conditions. Um, And that those, uh, those beginnings of the regulatory system uh, were modernized and became the kafala system that we saw in 2010 um, in Qatar when it was awarded the World Cup. Um, The conversations about the regulatory structure have remained as global as they ever were. And the reforms that Qatar has seen to its regulatory structure are a product of those conversations. Qatar, in collaboration with the International Labor Organization, has removed some elements of bondage from the kafala system such that workers can now leave the country without an exit permit. There is a very, very basic minimum wage uh, of about $250 a month. Uh, And then uh, workers have the ability 
on paper to change jobs, although in practice, that ability is not available to them. Um, so, right, these global conversations about working conditions in Qatar continue to inform the regulatory structure. In some ways, it would seem to be a, a juxtaposition to say uh, we have this 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 bondage system, which which harkens back to uh, you know old forms of 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 you know the slavery system harkens back to old forms of bondage uh, and how it's it's antiquated. And yet, as you explain, it's in, it's actually very uh, compatible and even a product of this. Uh, modernist vision that Qatar has for itself and 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 how it, 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 it coexists quite harmoniously with it and how it has that modernist element to it. Absolutely. I mean, you know, Qatar is a modernist dream. I mean, it's a, it's a high modernist paradise. Um, uh, you have uh, 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 the resources to create uh, an amazing uh, modernist vision of the city And, you know, the ethos of modernism is really that the architect, planner, and uh, sovereign uh, design the city to make persons, right, to define what personhood is, uh, you know, as opposed to a city that responds to the needs of its residents, right? So the the city imposes its will on the residents in in the modernist version. And in Qatar, that's definitely the case, except for in Qatar, the, the residents are imported once the city has established itself as a vision. Um, and this vision excludes the workers who built it. So Qatar is a city that is actually formally, as a matter of policy, segregated by skill. And workers who are labeled as unskilled are required to live in an area uh, outside of the capital called the industrial area. They are prohibited from living in the city proper. um, And they are uh, prohibited as a matter of practice from uh, the public spaces in uh, Doha. They, They are not allowed to move through the city. So the city is conceived as a place that relies on exploited labor uh, for its construction. And yet those very same workers are excluded from the vision of the city um, as as an imaginary, but also in practice, uh, such that workers are absolutely formally segregated um, from Qatar, from from Doha. Um, And it's important to note, I think, that the areas they are confined to are zoned for industrial use. So workers are housed uh, in labor camps that sit right next to uh, cement factories, to aluminum smelting plants, to all sorts of polluting industries. They are, you know, in the courtyards of their labor camps are parked earth movers and cranes and uh, uh, diesel transport. I mean, Basically, workers are considered as uh, a, a production input, not as persons. And this is part of this modernist, uh, a byproduct of this modernist ideal where the city is created for the global knowledge elite and not for the workers who built it. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a bit upon how skill is embodied. In, in this environment and, and, and how, uh, how uh, you know, representing and controlling skill uh, becomes a, a form of power by uh, the Qatari uh, authorities. So one of the things that was really fascinating to see is just how um, variegated and nuanced the skill was that workers developed. Um, one of the things that uh, was really remarkable was how... Um, how workers learned without a common language. So uh, on these sites, uh, you know, workers came from all over the world. And on one of the sites that I was on, for example, uh, one of the managers counted 22 languages on a site of 8,000 men. So, right, in, in many contexts, workers actually didn't have a shared verbal language for, to, to, to use for teaching and learning. And yet they develop this really uh, advanced, highly nuanced, 
highly sensitive and deeply embodied skill, uh, without which these structures couldn't have been built. Um, and uh, right, like even though companies develop their training systems, those formal systems relied on these informal practices of teaching and learning. And in fact, these were so central that they provided the basis for workers to develop almost kinship relationships. So they referred to themselves, uh, to one another as uh, big brother or uncle for the skilled workers and little brother or son for the unskilled uh, apprentices, right? So there really was a sense that skill, the web of skill of teaching and learning was a kinship web. Um, and, you know, one of the workers I spoke to about how he taught new arrivals explained to me that the only way that you can teach someone is to teach someone with love. You have to understand their mind, uh, understand where they're coming from. So really an empathetic approach to teaching and learning. And yet uh, managers, managers routinely uh, denied that this that workers had this, these practices and um, disrupted them often uh, by moving workers around, by controlling their physical movements, by disciplining them in ways that were really about denying their embodied skill. Uh, and so this was a real source of tension. The, the very skill that managers depended on for their production was was disrupted, controlled, denied, suppressed, uh, uh, bullied away uh, on site. It was really quite remarkable to see. Hmm. And now, this is not something that the workers simply passively accept. And that's what that, that was. What I thought was one of the most fascinating chapters of your book was when you describe how workers resist and it but it's not just a description in, in the chapter of, of of how workers you know push back against this it also demonstrates the ways in which a lot of that basically what sort of protests are tolerated uh, how protests are channeled and uh, what often is is the fate of of workers who try to assert themselves uh, in this environment yeah, I mean, as part of the Kefela system, right, that all workers worked under, labor protests uh, were and still are illegal in Qatar, uh, as is any form of labor organizing. Um, they can result in immediate uh, imprisonment and deportation, um, uh, and, and did. I observed this. Um, but, you know, one of the things that was fascinating was that wildcat spontaneous strikes were, were actually quite common Every single site I was on saw a strike at one point or another. Um, and employers actually tolerated these strikes so long as they hewed to a very specific script. Uh, the strikes had to be short, a day or two. Workers had to stay in their labor camps. No protests or challenges were tolerated on site, even the most minor uh, expression of, of uh, resistance. Um, as one supervisor told me, uh, it's like a spark that can set the whole place on fire. So they tamp down any disobedience on site really uh, quite um, violently, I would say. And the protests had to be limited to one nationality. And if the protests stayed within these parameters, um, the managerial staff uh, tolerated them and viewed them as workers just blowing off steam. If protests deviated from these management-defined rules, right, these simulacra of protests, if they, if they deviated from these rules, they resulted in immediate deportation. And um, especially threatening to, to managers were protests that uh, allowed workers or through which workers organized across nationality because it meant that they were no longer, you know, blowing off steam as, uh, as Bangladesh, Bangladeshi staying back in camp or Nepali staying back in camp, but rather that they were organizing as workers with a class consciousness. And those protests, right, protests across nationality uh, were basically disappeared through deportation. But workers still found a way to resist. And here skill uh, played a really important role. Um, the most powerful strategies that workers developed to 
resist extreme exploitation drew not just on their expertise, but on the relationships of teaching and learning that they had developed. Um, Workers referred to their expertise to resist, uh, in particular, unsafe practices, but they drew on the relationships they built through teaching and learning, you know, these kinship relationships as a source of solidarity. And it's that solidarity that really allowed them to hold their ground. Um, To give you one quick example, on one side I was on, the scaffolders were asked to work double shifts, which would have meant that they worked 18 hours. Uh, That meant no time to go back to the labor camp and sleep. And uh, they were also told that they would have to work at night with floodlights illuminating the scaffolds. And those floodlights cast confusing shadows. And for workers contemplating this, you know, working, doing this work, some 30 stories up in the air, in the dark, on no sleep, it became, I mean, it was obvious that this was unsafe. And workers drew on their expertise to challenge this. And they all stood together because of these relationships of teaching and learning, the solidarity. And management backed down. It's understandable that they backed down considering how hazardous that would have been. And that's one of the things that, that, that was really horrifying to read about in your book was how you, how the definitions of skill were oftentimes the source of injury. And, and, and some of these injuries were just absolutely horrific. I, mean, the, uh, you, uh, I, I was thinking, for example, about you know, when you were talking about the, the Nepalese and how they were, you, know, you were seeing uh, one uh, Nepali worker dying per day. And that's just the the workers from Nepal, and and, and how it, it's the it, it just points to the the conditions in which that that these workers are in. It's not just an abstract notion of they're being dehumanized, they're being skilled. I mean, this is something that is literally a matter of life and death for many of them. Yes, it is. It is literally a matter of life and death, and um, you know, some of this has to do with the specific hazards in Qatar. But um, these are hazards that we will face in many areas around the world very quickly. Qatar is one of the the fastest warming places on the planet because of an accident of geography. Um, Only the Arctic is warming faster than Qatar. But the temperatures there are already extreme. They are, uh, in the summer months, life-threatening to uh, bodies at rest. Um, And yet workers work in these extreme temperatures and they suffer high rates of injury and death as a result of the heat that they face. And in fact, when I asked workers what the most difficult aspect of their jobs were as as one of the many questions I asked them, they invariably listed heat. They didn't refer to wage theft or um, managerial bullying or um, forced overtime invariably they spoke about the heat and they commented on the fact that it was unimaginable to them uh, before they had arrived. They described the heat as uh, the sky pressing down on them or that they were drowning in the air or that they felt like the fire of the air was eating them up. I mean, these were really graphic descriptions of the kind of torment that heat and in particular working, doing heavy physical and cognitive work in the heat uh, represented for them. And this is, and the heat, uh, the, the heat stress and the potential for heat injury is where this category of unskilled becomes very salient. Um, and that is because heat attacks the neurocognitive system. And one of the first symptoms of heat stress Uh, Well, one of the first symptoms, the range of symptoms are confusion, disorientation, the loss of ability to move your body, orient yourself in space. Um, Heat basically separates you from your skill. And so for a scaffolder hanging 20 stories up in the air or a clatter craning an enormous panel of glass and aluminum against the shear of desert winds the loss of this ability can very easily lead to injury and death. Um, But the description of workers as unskilled made it very easy to blame them for the injuries they suffered. Uh, In other words, um, it's not that the heat damaged their cognition. 
It's that as unskilled workers, they did not have the desire or the capacity to use their skill to protect themselves, or they just did not have it to begin with at all, right? So there was here a, a way in which the representation of workers as unskilled as a political category and as a, as a rhetorical tool allowed management to place the culpability for heat injury onto workers and to completely erase uh, the power dynamics that uh, led workers to be exposed and compelled to do heavy physical labor and heavy cognitive work in conditions that uh, were, as I said, life-threatening to bodies at rest. And, And this, by the way, is, uh, you know, this is not something that I mentioned in the book, but this is something that has continued. The Qatari government has worked with the ILO to establish heat safety protocols and um, has been, uh, and the Qatari government has really touted these new protocols as pathbreaking, as cutting edge, as highly protective. Um, there's a lot of pride around these protective protocols, but they are not protective. The, the line, the limit, the temperature limit at which work stops is already well into the life-threatening zone. So there, is, uh, there are several uh, degrees of uh, heat in which workers are uh, allowed to work in, allowed to be compelled to work in. Um, and yet the ILO touts this as protective. And the reason they do is they have based their regulatory design on the idea that workers have the autonomy and the freedom to self-pace and to self-regulate on site. And this completely denies the power dynamics and again reinforces the managerial push to make workers culpable for their own injuries by tagging them as unskilled. This element of, of, of climate change that you uh, have introduced is, is something that you uh, that is plays a very large role in what's going on here, not just in terms of what's happening in Qatar, but what's happening more broadly. And I thought it was it was it was uh, you know fascinating to think of it how you're talking about a, a nation that is built on uh, the uh, extraction and, and and sale of fossil fuels and how this has contributed to climate change and yet as you described in in your uh, penultimate chapter you are also talking about how the effects of climate change is what is creating this large pool of of, of labor that they can draw upon to build this uh, the, this uh, modernist environment that they that they, that they're uh, constructing in, in their country. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that surprised me was that employers in Qatar were very deliberately turning to places around the world that were damaged by climate change to recruit workers. Um, they were actively seeking places wiped out by typhoons, uh, places shriveled by drought or flooded by sea level rise. Uh, for workers. uh, And they sought out these places because climate damage had turned the relatively well-off people who lived in many of these places into the newly poor and made them available to migrate. And this was attractive to employers because the newly poor had benefited in better days from investments in education, in nutrition, and health, but were now willing to accept lower wages than they would have before. And those investments, as I said, in education and nutrition, health, were essential for what employers called absorptive capacity. Um, In other words, the ability to learn, the ability to become highly skilled quickly. So, These climate damaged places were places where they could recruit large numbers of workers at relatively low wages, workers who had these who were, you know, in bulk and cheap, but at the same time who had this all important, crucial ability to learn and to become highly skilled very quickly. Um, And what uh, seemed to be emerging was a pattern Uh, in which 
recruiters working with Qatari companies were shifting strategy from um, a business approach of recruiting workers to a business approach that focused on recruiting places and targeting specifically places that were experiencing climate change pressures. Um, And so this uh, climate damage-centered strategy allowed companies in Qatar to recruit workers who could learn, become highly skilled, but could be classified pretty much permanently as unskilled with all of the attendant consequences and all of the denial of freedom that this implied. Um, I think, you know, there's a, there's a way in which we can think about this as being kind of just dystopian, but I, I don't think that that's the most helpful frame. I don't think that Qatar is an outlier. I think what it points to is the ways in which climate change will enter uh, business practices and labor relations in a really central way. Um, Qatar is uh, a limiting case. It's a limiting case in the number of migrants. It's a limiting case in in how wealthy it is. Uh, It's lavishly wealthy. It's a limiting case in terms of its ambitions. You know, its slogan for the World Cup is expect amazing. And it, and, it, and it really did reinvent itself, building entirely new stretches of urban settlement, uh, luxury developments that, uh, you know, for, for half a million people, new artificial islands, new uh, world-class cutting-edge infrastructure, really in the space of less than a decade. And at the same time, it's a limiting case in that it shows us Uh, the ways in which climate change pressures uh, are likely to affect working conditions on site uh, and uh, not just the working conditions on site, but working the the processes around work, including recruitment um, that uh, of all the places that that development touches, right? So development in Qatar touches places all around the world through recruitment practices. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Sure. So I'm interested in exploring this uh, climate change dimension a little bit further. Um, And so I have started to think um, about a project that uh, explores the impact of climate change on labor relations in the construction of climate protective infrastructure, um, starting with the US, but but building out with a focus uh, in particular on uh, low carbon concrete. The reason to look at the built environment is that 40% of all emissions globally are a product of the built environment. Uh, It's building, it's maintenance and it's use. Um, And so understanding how climate pressures are likely to change that and what this will mean for work relationships and work uh, power dynamics and working conditions in, uh, in construction, but also in the design and use of the built environment is, is crucial. And here um, I'm also looking at some of the um, uh, patterns of uh, immigration, migration uh, that uh, are... Um, providing or connecting with the labor needs of the construction industry in the U.S. Sounds like a fascinating project. I wish you the best of luck with it. Thank you. Natasha Skender, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you so much for having me.